0: Our final session today is about building resilience in financial services. Um, uh, Joining me to discuss this are Alison Barker. Head uh, Director of Specialist Supervision at the Financial Conduct Authority. Uh, Jennifer Calvary, Global Head of Financial Crime Threat Mitigation at HSBC. Stephen Dalton, uh, Head of Intelligence at the Insurance Fraud Bureau. Uh, Jonathan Fisher QC, a barrister at Redline Chambers and also Founder and Director of Brightline Law uh, and reporter of BAE Systems. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you all very much um, for Sorry. coming. So uh, somebody called... Caroline Binham, who you've run into earlier on today, has been quite busy uh, over the past few days writing stories about a certain Danske Bank, um, which included a quote from Transparency International, UK's head of advocacy, which read, It is no surprise that UK companies were the most commonly used to channel suspicious wealth through the bank. So it's a topic that is very much in the news, not just this week. Um, so, uh, Alison uh, Bark from the FCA, we can start with you. Uh, when we talk about resilience and building resilience, Uh, Can you tell us how you see the role of regulators in that and and, uh, how you at the FCA actually go about doing this?
1: Okay. Thank you very much, Barney. So um, obviously the regulators have a very key role to play in uh, building resilience across both the financial crime space, the cyberspace we've heard a, a lot about today. Um, Our role, if I go into sort of a technical space, our role is to um, take action to prevent the financial sector from being used for the purposes of financial crime. So that's a role we take very seriously. And I think the, the sort of two key areas I will just focus on is... Firstly, the role we play in um, intelligence sharing or working with other agencies in terms of as a community, how do we both with other agencies and with the private sector actually work to um, to sort of combat uh, financial crime? And then our role as supervisors in uh, assessing whether firms are meeting the standards that we actually actually set. So the sorts of things that um, we're talking about in that space are uh you know working uh, looking at how firms are doing their risk-based analysis how they're looking at customer due diligence those types of things so we will look closely at those and on the cyber side um, you may have been familiar with um, a discussion paper that we've issued recently alongside the Bank of England um, and the PRA um, for market, for Financial Market Infrastructure, which is talking about actually how do we build resilience for the sector in terms of technology in the cyberspace. So we have a, a sort of discussion around what, what are the um, expectations and standards that we ought to look at. So I think those are important things from a regulator in terms of you know, san- standard setting, working in a partnership basis with other agencies and um, we've heard mention of things like Gimlet, uh, the FCA is very involved in those types of initiatives mm-hmm. um, and also in terms of assessing whether you know whether we're actually meeting the standards as an industry um, that are being set.
0: So uh, regulators and, and investigators and prosecutors have been handed quite a few tools over the last few years to take a not so arbitrary date of since the financial crisis. I'm thinking of You have a direct criminal finances act and senior managers regime. Has that made a difference to the the people you deal with? Have have financial institutions become uh, more eager to please? Have they become more helpful? Are they cooperating?
1: So I think certainly in terms of the senior manager's regime, which is probably, um, you know, has had an effect in terms of, uh, you know, setting rules around culture may not achieve very much, but actually um, setting rules which are around expectations of, of people and incentives for people to behave in particular ways, certainly we feel has made a difference in terms of actually focusing minds um, on things. Uh, the other thing I would actually draw attention to is on the cyber side, um, the work, uh, to, to the, the cooperation that has been built up between industry and um, agencies across not just us, but across government, in terms of actually the focus on doing the right things and actually tackling cyber, um, the cyber threat. As I think somebody said this morning, there's no competitive industry um, in cyber. It's actually something we all face together. And there's been an enormous um, joint working and cooperation between across industry and all agencies to actually really tackle that threat.
0: So Jennifer, could we talk about collaboration and cooperation a little bit more and just um, unpick what, what it means because I was up at the uh, the Cambridge International Symposium on Economic Crime earlier this month and every, every speech was collaboration. It's all about collaboration. But can you just give us a better idea of what that means for you?
2: Yeah, sure. I guess my, my view on this issue is is informed um, a bit by my background. So. Uh, I have been a prosecutor at the Department of Justice where my last job uh, involved prosecuting banks for failing to, to put in place effective anti-money laundering or sanctions programs. Um, I was a regulator and the head of the US uh, Financial Intelligence U- Unit as the head of FinTech and, and now I'm at a really big Global Bank, uh, where I work on financial crime risk issues. Um, so when I, I, I think of this issue, I, I think about it both in terms of some of the enforcement actions, as well as um, uh, how the, the three need, areas needed to collaborate more together. So when it comes to enforcement, enforcement is important to, to drive that resilience in the overall system, have that kind of minimum uh, expectation and standards by which er all the financial institutions uh, need to meet. So so that drives that bit. Mm -hmm. It gives us resilience in the financial sector. But I can tell you, even when I was at the Department of Justice or or as a regulator who was doing these enforcement actions, the really the more interesting part was the partnership between industry (laughs) law enforcement and regulators Uh, to work together to keep the financial system uh, free of criminal activity. Um, Not so much where an institution failed to get it right and now we're gonna enforce against them, but how can we work together as partners um, in this joint endeavor to try to keep the financial system free of financial crime. And so when you ask what does this collaboration mean, it means just that, getting all three players at the table and each talking about what your role is, what expertise you have, what data you have, and how we can make those things work together to enable, at the end of the day, law enforcement really to do its job when it comes to uh, financial crime. And as the the poll showed, of course, um, the the player that we often don't talk about are are the fintechs or or consulting agencies. Uh, that helped to to drive some of the changes and and to work on best practices amongst peers. Another key player in terms of collaboration.
0: Mm-hmm. So, and um, one of the words up there um, that we haven't yet touched on is recruitment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wanted to ask you uh, when you know thinking of of, of your role, um, do. People, when you when you recruit them, do they have to now have and dem- to be able to demonstrate new skills in in compliance and risk identification, cybercrime? Before you hire them, uh, is it something that you do in house? Uh, you know, how has how that how has that changed?
2: Actually, the interesting changes that are are happening in our recruiting. Um, uh, are linked to to perhaps what I'm wearing today. You might notice I'm dressed a bit more informally. Um, It's because today I'm working at our Park Street office, which is where we have our data scientists, our tech folks, um, and and our people who are are really adept at analytics. Uh, And we have more of a Google atmosphere there in terms of what we wear uh, and so forth. But really now, uh, our big focus, in addition to bringing in people who have skills and know the regulations and, and maybe know how financial crime works is really bringing in folks that are adept at the use uh, of data and technology, um, both because that's where banking is going and the products and services are changing uh, and becoming more digital, but also because I think financial crime uh, compliance is, is turning digital and so everyone across our space whether they're a traditional compliance officer or whether our data scientists are gonna to have to at least have some level of fluency with data, data privacy like the last panel um, and analytics.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh,
0: Stephen, uh, tell us about the insurance industry. How has fraud and, and economic crime being uh, been affecting you and and how does that also tie in with other forms of serious organized crime? Well, uh,
3: insurance fraud continues to be a significant threat for the industry. Um, Last year, the Association of British Insurers um, reported that the total amount of detected insurance fraud was £1.3 billion, that was over 112,000 claims that were detected as fraud. Now, bearing in mind the industry is not there. Uh, to detect fraud, uh, the level of undetected fraud is clearly unknown, uh, but is going to be significant as well. So it, it continues to be a significant threat for us. The, the vast majority of, of insurance fraud that's detected is within the motor sphere, um, uh, within sort of uh, um, what they call bent metal claims in terms of accidents and also personal injury. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, whilst most of the detected fraud is opportunistic in nature in terms of first party. Uh, claimant activity which is always difficult to tackle Um, there is a significant minority which is organized um, organized insurance fraud that's cross-industry that attacks multiple sectors and the the Insurance Fraud Bureau is an organization that was set up primarily in the first instance to tackle that and we've talked a bit about collaboration and there is a well established uh, and well-founded model that the industry, um, uh, which traditionally is seen as a little bit old-fashioned, and I've turned up today in my my <laughs> sort of three-piece suit. So I wish I'd been a, <laughs> a little bit more relaxed. Uh, should, have, should have checked, out, should have the checked out the dress code. Um, but uh, it's it, it's proved to be a very innovative uh, modelling in terms of which the insurance industry has has shared data for some time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's a central register for motor insurance policies called the Motor Insurance Database, which is required under the Road Traffic Act. Uh, but the industry's also recognised the value of sharing information about claims. So the Claims Underwriting Exchange and there's other databases that exist in similar format. What the industry recognizes though, is that it needed some a custodian to oversee that data and to identify risks, organize fraud risks within it. And that was the reason that the IFB was set up back in 2006. And we're a not-for-profit, funded, limited company, effectively um, funded by the industry to develop um, and identify uh, organized uh, criminals attacking the industry across sector. So we use that data, and there's about 143 million records within the consolidated data set that we hold, and we're able to use sophisticated uh, network analytics tools to identify patterns of risk behavior. But that can only take you so far. Uh, because at the end of the day that's a pure analytic risk, you then need to develop that into, into what, what does that mean in real terms and we work quite closely with um, uh, single points of contact within the insurance industry to establish evidential risk and evidential cases and we then um, engage with law enforcement and regulators to develop disrup- disruption opportunities uh, to tackle those particular uh, cases. So that was our original focus. We're now moving uh, beyond motor. We continue to see that as a major threat. But uh, liability, public and employer's liability fraud, we're seeing organized activity in that area as well, as well as household fraud uh, in a consistent approach. Everyone's aware of the travel sickness craze that went on a little while back. And whilst we're not necessarily suggesting that claimants in that space were organized criminals, certainly the people that were encouraging that and coordinating that activity uh, some of those individuals were, had links to organised crime. Um, and it's worth remembering as well that you know we're talking about money here and we're talking about the fraud, funding, other kinds of criminality. Some of the, in the, some of the spaces we're operating in, certainly in, within the motor sphere, the crash for cash activity has real, real life consequences for people. We've had um, at least three examples of fatalities in the UK that I'm, I know of that we've been involved in where we've got organised criminal gangs perpetrating those slam-ons on, pub- on the public highway and causing death and serious injury to people. So it's a very, very serious risk, but I think because of that um, position, we've, we've now developed this fairly mature um, position in terms of that um, assessing that um, the data that exists collaboratively so that we can then develop those intelligence <coughs> products. Um, finally, the, the other thing to then, to having that basis and that, en- that entity now, The IFB, having been around for for a while, is is now established as a specified anti fraud organisation. That gives us credibility when it comes to talking to regulators and and law enforcement agencies, and we've set up effective intelligence sharing arrangements with those organisations as well. But it's also allowed us to become the, the platform by which the industry can now start to ask us to handle its confirmed fraud data. So we've established an insurance fraud register, which is of confirmed fraud. (coughs) um, uh, And we are now moving into development of a a suspect intelligence database where where insurers can share in a safe and compliant manner information about individuals that they believe are involved in insurance fraud as well. So there's a lot still to do, but we've made a significant amount of progress.
0: (coughs) So let's turn now to the criminal barrister in the room, um, Jonathan. very interested to get your take. Uh, you've done a lot of work feeding into uh, policy discussions, policy formulation about the UK's response to economic crime. Uh, just taking a, I'm particularly interested in in, 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 in the in the in the the time view. How have you seen uh, law enforcement agencies, regulators, and finance institutions respond to the threat of fraud and money laundering and other types of economic crime? Yes. Um,
4: well, certainly, uh, the. Uh, prime mover in terms of the response, I think, on the ground, has been to further the private-public partnership, which you've been speaking about in terms of collaboration. That's unquestionably right. Mm -hmm. Um, We've seen other areas of legal response. It's quite interesting since the GFC, we've really seen a push on uh, anti-corruption. I say that's interesting. I I don't cry it for a moment. I'm sure it's a good thing. But it is interesting that um, the measures that we see in the Bribery Act, for example, and more recently now with the corporate facilitation of tax, that tax evasion offense, um, but that, has, that, that model of criminality has not been extended to financial crime generally, um, which uh, I, I think maybe tells a, a little bit of a story um, in the sense that uh, one is seeing government shying away a little bit from tackling Financial crime uh, in in that in that sense. Um, certainly, if that uh, measure was put on the on the statute book, I think it would certainly be very helpful. For example, the FCA uh, in seeking to uh, uh, ensure that their guidance in preventing financial crime um, was also given a, a little bit of statutory backing in the sense of uh, it being a criminal offence um, if companies failed to deliver. Um, so we we have a mixed bag reality. Um, I think enforcement tries its best, but it's on a very limited budget. Um, Look, in terms of collaboration, um, I find it very interesting to listen to what you're saying. There's no doubt that collaboration has been the buzzword and has been a driver. Um, But... um, you know don't let's get carried away we have in this room a bunch of people who spend their lives working in the prevention of financial crime I have to tell you that when I have the pleasure of seeing some of the, your directors in conference um, they're not quite as enthusiastic as, as, as you might be um, the number of times I've been asked by, not by the lawyers and not by the compliance people, but by the senior directors, would you please tell me the minimum we have to do to be compliant? We don't want to know anything about um, what you think we should do. We don't, want, we don't want to know about any furry edges. Just tell us what we need to do to keep them away, them being, of course, the regulators. Um, the other thing that I would mention about collaboration Um, Well, a couple of things, really. First of all, we do need the state, from what I can see, and by that, that's a euphemism for the NCA, um, to start sharing a little bit more information. Now, I know that a number of you are members of privileged members of Gimlet, and I'm not decrying that for a moment either. But I think I do put into the equation um, how membership is acquired and how are those people, uh, institutions who are not uh, part of the privileged deaf few in that sense, being being members, um, how they are supposed to acquire the information. I would also just mention this from a legal perspective. I think we have to be very careful um, in terms of, of course, we know about data protection, but in terms of confidentiality, um, what information we are revealing um, in relation to our clients, our customers. We may have the gateways in place, um, although as uh, was mentioned earlier, people don't always appreciate that. Um, but I do think that there is a case if we're going to go along this road of continued collaboration, and not for one moment saying we shouldn't, but I do think there's a case for having a better statutory footing, a statutory framework uh, for this sort of collaboration, because I do think there's a disaster waiting to happen um, in in the sense of uh, an aggrieved customer at some point um, turning around and uh, saying that um, information has been passed. Uh, over to the authorities, which which uh, didn't have uh, the, uh, the the strongest of gateways to support it. Um, so I just mentioned that it, as regards enforcement. I think enforcement is very interesting, but there are problems, you know, which are not really spoken about very often. Um, And uh, I know we've got a representative from the FCA and of course I appreciate the the, the FCA's position. But there is a tension from a criminal law perspective between what the FCA does in terms of its supervisory role and what it does in terms of its enforcement role. I'm not getting into finances as to who pays for the FCA and who they're answerable to, um, which in criminal law terms is, is also an interesting question because the line does not go to the Attorney General. But um, I'm actually raising something else. Um, Supervision is there very much to support the industry, to deliver the the result um, and uh, to keep everybody on track to make sure that there is no uh, financial crime mishap Enforcement, of course, is completely different. It may have, at the end of the day, a similar objective, uh, namely to prevent by deterring. But actually, it's from a criminal law perspective, it's not easy to square the two sometimes. Because if you find that you've got enforcement action being taken in a situation where there's been in uh, uh, significant, considerable support from supervision, and that's been going on at the same time. You can see how, um, from the perspective of the financial institution, at the end of that criminal uh, action, how they will have something to say about that because it's the first defence you will reach for when you go to the shelf of on the off the off the shelf defences. You will say, "Well, we've only d- they knew what we were doing. We were dealing with supervision throughout." Um, and you can see see how that that works. So, just a few thoughts um, as to uh, how one might approach these two important issues: collaboration and enforcement, from a criminal law's perspective. Oh,
0: oh. Are we still using? Are we back on? Are we still using? Uh, Rob, well, I'm going to. I, gonna, look, I, I want want you to pick up on pretty I much actually, anything.
5: I actually wondered if Alison wanted to uh, to comment or, or or even to respond to some of Jonathan's comments. Um, well,
1: oh. yeah, I guess the. Thanks, Rob. I think, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think well, I know they're interesting comments. I guess the first thing I'd say is that um, in terms of law enforcement, oh, sorry, are we Jordan, off my, Do I need to press on No, I don't no. think so. Um, in terms of law enforcement, obviously from a criminal point of view, um, the majority, the lead prosecutor in terms of financial crime would be the National Crime Agency. Um, the FCA does have, um, a, does have criminal powers. Um, and obviously, a lot of cases are also taken under our FISMA powers, which I think you would class as civil powers. So, um, in terms of j- just sort of in terms of how the in law enforcement um, process um, works, um, but I think in terms of what we would say is that uh, the sort of work we do in supervision to assess the standards that uh, people are working to is a necessary way of. Um, of working right across the financial sector to actually understand what those risks are and work to improve the standards across um, right across the sector um, as a whole both in financial crime in terms of the anti-money laundering supervisory role that we perform but also in relation to the the work we're doing on cyber and technology resilience as a whole so we have we have a wide role and um, you know it covers a range of tools and we use those tools um, in the appropriate way or how we feel in an appropriate way. I guess probably as a, you know, you may have views as well. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Uh, um,
2: I guess when I was at the Department of Justice, we viewed ourselves in in that role as the regulator of last resort. Um, So playing on this idea of if the supervision um, uh, wasn't pulling out, uh, exactly um, some of the weaknesses and breakdowns that we saw at a financial institution, um, or if they were so egregious, perhaps the supervisor had found them as well, but they were so egregious that it still deserved uh, criminal enforcement attention, then that's what the, the uh, Department of Justice would do. But always with a recognition that at the end of the day, um, post any type of enforcement action, it's really the supervisor that's going to have that ongoing relationship that's going to focus on any of those breakdowns and the remediation of those over time. So while uh, in some ways maybe it's no different than the three lines of defense at a bank, uh, if if the Justice Department was the third and final line, it would, of course, point out anything um, that it it saw in terms of of shortcomings uh, of that next line um, while looking at at the first line at the the financial institution itself. Uh, And and at the end of the day, uh, really the second line, uh, the supervisory agencies, the the one that needs to oversee what's happening there. So there is some, some tension built into the system and there were some tense discussions over the years. Uh, having been in all three of those chairs now, uh, I, I can tell you for sure there's some tense uh, discussions, but I think it's a, a healthy tension that's meant to make the system more resilient.
0: Rob, I do wanna sure. get you in while we've just got so time.
5: I think building on that um, building on that supervisory point and actually something Jonathan said, John, uh, John Cusack raised it earlier today, um, I have to question why there is that concept or that question of the minimum required to be compliant with guidance uh, and expectations from a supervisory point of view, um, because actually when we when we think about technology for collaboration in financial crime. We're led by our customers, and our customers kind of drive us broadly in three directions. So firstly, we look within the bank, and the reality is that the majority of banks today are running technology to monitor transactions, to screen customers, to uh, screen transactions, leaving the bank for sanctioned entities, which are generating over 90%, in some cases 95%, one customer on Monday told me over 99% of noise. over 90 percent of false positives coming out of these systems even best practice systems based on um, you know good uh, technology which has been implemented correctly Um, but fundamentally we're we're, we're applying a uh, an out-of-date set of technology (laughs) to a very modern and to a very quickly moving problem. So firstly, we we look within the bank. We talked earlier about uh, an intelligence-led approach and actually applying much more advanced data analytics using many more sources of information within the bounds of privacy and uh, cross-group information sharing agreements often um, to make a much more accurate Picture of customer behaviour, but also the people that our customers relate to, you know, counterparties to a trade, other entities within the transaction, especially when you get into more complicated banking products in the commercial bank, for instance. Um, so we look at we, we, we look at that piece, and again, you know, uh, uh, coming back to that question, compliance versus focus on on financial crime, we do see a number of institutions, some of them represented today, taking the very brave step to say, I actually want to go beyond what is compliance. I want to be the best in field. I want to drive the financial criminals out of our bank using these modern technologies, using the, uh, using the system. Um, secondly, we think about the, the collaboration across the industry. Um, and we've talked about gimlis we've talked about the SARS regime earlier in the day. I believe that there is a, a, a dire need to make the SARS regime in the UK a much lower friction experience, for both for all parties, should we say, Um, to embed the culture of collaboration and working together that some of the intelligence sharing and Jimlick groups have been fantastic in in establishing, embed that in the business as usual, embed that in the SARS regime. I wonder whether some of the technology conversation that we heard today around PSD2, around the APIs that are being put in place might actually go some way from a technology perspective to, to enable that. And then, and then thirdly, kind of building on that, that kind of cultural collaboration points, you know, so I'll, I'll, I'll mention the the FCA tech sprint that was run earlier this year. I think one of our uh, attendees was kind enough to host it on behalf of the FCA. Uh, and I, w- I was lucky enough to be there and to hear the... Um, uh, the buzz is really the way to describe it within the room when a couple of hundred people from all of the different uh, all of the different players in our world, so from vendors such as ourselves, from the regulators, from the banks, uh, I think there were some law enforcement uh, representatives there as well we are able to form small teams and come up with truly innovative ideas about how we how we bring this forward so there's a cultural side to it as well which I do think we are starting to um, I'm not coming to anyone's defense but I, th- I do think we're starting to, to, to make the, make the right steps towards
0: um, I have realized that I have completely neglected my slido question uh, responsibilities so I think for the time we've got left um, we'll do it the old-fashioned way and throw it open to the floor has anyone got any questions that they would like to ask. Yes, there's a lady over here. We've got a floating microphone.
1: Firstly, thanks, everyone, for a great event. Um, My question, uh, I guess, for everyone on the panel. um, To what extent um, does the push to drive shareholder value um, and, and, and dividend payments stymie or support the efforts to fight financial crime?
2: Jennifer, do you want to take that first? Sure, I'm happy to to take that. And and in some ways, I think it it follows on some of Rob's comments around um, focusing on financial crime versus compliance, and are those the same thing? Um, And and perhaps follows on uh, the the, the legal points around um, why would some uh, high-level senior uh, leadership members of institutions ask about what does it take to be minimally compliant? Um, I hope uh, uh, that the reason that they're asking that question is because there is some tension between what does it take to be compliant versus what does it take to actually find real financial crime. We have backed ourselves into a, a situation across the board, where we have some systems in place that are incredibly noisy, inefficient, and, and dare say, um, probably don't, aren't as effective at finding financial crime as as we would all like. Um, and there's broad recognition, uh, uh, both in the public and private sector on that. That's why the FCA is hosting tech sprints. They're, they're really pushing all of us to, to get better and, and understand how do we find real financial crime rather than complying with expectations. Um, And so, uh, at least at at our institution, we've taken the decision um, that we're willing to spend more money, um, both, first of all, to comply, that's our absolute requirement, we will comply, so um, continuing to, to strive to make sure we have that exactly Uh, Right, which is an ongoing process, Um, but also to take uh, uh, the extra step of investing in things that aren't yet required, but the future. Uh, How do we think we could find financial crime even better than we do today? And we're doing that um, uh, because we want to be leaders in in fighting financial crime. That comes from the very top of our house, Um, and we believe that that does have um, impact uh, on the bottom line as well. So first of all, if we can do it better, uh, uh, we can do it more efficiently. So perhaps um, in some ways we can turn off inefficient systems. But if we can do it better, uh, we also are not wasting time onboarding customers that we later exit because we found out we should have never onboarded them in the first place. They're engaged in fraud or some other type of financial crime. Um, And that's a very costly process to go into. Uh, We want more of the vast, vast majority of the types of customers we have. Have, the, the good people who are, are going about their lives, uh, you know, building businesses, um, raising families, etc. And we want to understand what that looks like and push our market more in that direction. Um, so, understanding where we have risk, being very targeted about that, and making sure we don't onboard and we uh, get rid of any financial crime, crime risk we have is about uh, helping our bottom line.
4: Can I just, um, I say, can I just add can I just add a little to that? Because I think your question is, is absolutely fantastic. I'd like to invite you to spend the next three years working on a doctorate, um, which actually focuses on what do we expect of the company today in this world? Because it's different from the 19th century laissez-faire concept of the corporate entity. And so we have expectations of companies to be good corporate citizens. And that's really what your question is driving at. and we haven't resolved that and we need to we need to actually sit down and think about what we are expecting our companies to deliver that's certainly true at the financial institution level where they are now custodians of the national wealth it's no longer under the bank of england in gold you remember that's been sold it's now held by you in your financial institutions and so I think that's terribly important. Your point about shareholder value, um, I, I, I would I would put it in this way. But I mean, look, um, it, it, shareholders today, in this new conception of the of the of the modern company, um, will want to be shareholders of a company that is run ethically, and therefore is doing the maximum. Um, to trade decently. And part of that is going to be knocking out financial crime. They don't want it, shouldn't want it. And that's where the ethical element comes in. Uh, And so that should, if the theory works, enhance the shareholder value rather than undermine it. And I have to say, in terms of, of, as it were, selling, um, whether it's uh, anti-money laundering or whether it's anti-corruption, the best way to persuade, particularly a smaller company, that they really need to adopt some proper anti corruption policies is to explain to them that this is actually good for their financial health uh, and those of their shareholders. And uh, I, I think that has to be the way forward. Thank you.
0: Yes, sir. Do we have any
6: more?
0: <coughs> I can try to speak. It. Sorry, it's one right there. It's-
6: Uh, So my name is Shojad Mirza and I I work at a bank. Um, We've spoken a lot about prevention here and uh, strengthening defenses against financial crime, which is great, and I'm not trying to reduce the significance of that at all. Um, And I might be being naive here, but um, how successful are law enforcement agencies in your view? In actually catching and punishing the perpetrators uh, perpetrators of this of financial crime, the organized crime, uh, gangs that we're talking about, the dark web that we know of but no one does anything about. Maybe I'm reading the no- wrong newspapers, but every time there is a hack or there is a financial crime, we hear about you know the banks and. A- this is not because I'm not work for a bank. I'm saying this, but the you know, bank's being fined for having not having the right defenses. You know, uh, the the CEO being fired for doing the, things like that. But how I don't read enough about you know perpetrators of financial crime, the cyber gangs being punished for what they did. Maybe we're not even being able to catch them. Maybe it's because we don't have the technology today to to do that, and maybe. We should think about investing more in that in addition to just prevention and defending ourselves better.
0: Who would like to?
2: So, I, I think it's a mixed picture. So, uh, at, at least our financial institution, we're in more than 60 jurisdictions. And so, you know, different jurisdictions have different levels of maturity. Um, but even if we were to take um, Uh, Europe as a whole and and those that are are member states of Europol, which is a a collection of of police agencies across Europe. I think Europol has come out publicly and said, of the reporting that financial institutions provide to them, um, really no more than than 10% um, lead to active investigations. And we know globally less than 1% of what are are, um, believed to be the criminal proceeds each year are confiscated. Um, so those numbers don't show a particular rosy um, picture. That being said, there are some great successes out there and a number of them in in, in each of the jurisdictions, quite frankly, where we operate and some jurisdictions are better than others. Um, I don't think we can kid ourselves that any of the activities we're doing are going to stop crime and that crime is gonna end. At, I don't know how achievable that is. So it's really about making sure that we're being efficient and effective in what we do do. We're going after the most serious things that we're prioritizing, et cetera, as a society, what we want our, our law enforcement to go after. Um, and I think quite frankly, that's that's probably an area where there's still some work to be done. Um, and there's no question the UK is I- internally right now is leading an effort to look at how can we modernize the efforts of our law enforcement, their capabilities to be more effective in this area.
3: Stephen, did you have uh, one Yeah, thing? so I can talk from a, an insurance uh, fraud perspective. Uh, certainly the, the insurance industry had a, a major challenge uh, with getting uh, law enforcement to take insurance fraud seriously uh, a few years ago. Um, That led to an investment by the industry uh, to fund um, a specialist unit within the City of London Police, the Insurance Fraud Enforcement Department. And um, I think that the key is about coordination of effort uh, and, and collaboration. So our role, the IFB's role in that, as well as obviously us developing the intelligence output, is to take those disruption opportunities and coordinate the industry's response with with law enforcement, so whether that be with IFED, uh, who have been, who are, who are about thirty strong uh, set of detectives working out of uh, the city, but have a national remit, they take on both opportunists and organised insurance fraud activity. They've been, they have been successful. It, a lot of this is about um, media attention as well, and getting getting the attract the, the attraction of media to sort of publicise. The stories, and that's certainly the case with the organised fraud activity. We've seen uh, a fairly effective media responses to, to to that sort of activity. So uh, that's not to say uh, that there isn't more to do. I agree with um, uh, my colleague here in terms of you know the, the proportion of activity um, still remains low, but it's a challenging environment. We know that the UK um, it, uh, faces challenges in terms of resourcing, which is why the industry has stepped in to provide some additional funding to to support. Uh, that activity, um, but for me the key uh, around this is making sure that uh, from, our, from our perspective, it, the industry looks to provide as much as it can to uh, to law enforcement to effectively give them the job wrapped up uh, in a bow so that they they don't, it's less easy for them to sort of push back and say they can't do it because they haven't got the time.
2: Yeah, I, I think it's worth pointing out one of the differences between the insurance and perhaps the banking industry. Um, I I found it really interesting that you've got the centralized capability to put together evidentiary packages uh, for law enforcement and provide that extra support because one of the questions we should be asking ourselves is why is it that only 10% of what banks report is is being acted upon? I'm sure there's lessons that need to be learned on the industry side. What is it we're providing and how can we provide something that's more actionable?
0: I can hear the rattle of cutlery, but I'm (laughs) going to... I'm going to push my luck and go for one more question.
6: Yes. Um, I'd love the panel's opinion on whether the fines
5: that have been handed down to the largest banks over the last 10 years or so have been enough to encourage them to be compliant or deter them from doing, in some cases, frankly, criminal things. Um, In the context of some banks rumoured to have pots of money set aside just for fines. or like the the fine for Danksbank, which probably won't really impact them in in any real way. Interested in opinions on that?
1: Should I start on that one? Oh, yes, please. <laughs> um, So I think uh, you're you're right that, and I think it's a comment that was made earlier that um, you know uh, the enforcement regimes uh, provide uh, a very important and credible deterrence, and from a UK perspective. Um, you know, some of our fines are actually very significant. So, um, 163 million is the largest fine that we've handed out for um, anti-money laundering um, breaches. So, um, and uh, obviously, the US has handed out significant fines as well. So, we would hope to see that those um, those uh, those actions actually do form um, a credible deterrent. But what I would say that as a regulator, of course, our supervisory action um, and the range of tools that we have, we would look at those uh, all together as one to sort of actually move the industry into, into compliance um, and actually be uh, more proactive in terms of how it's acting to deter financial crime.
0: Yes, very
4: quickly. Yes, absolutely. Um, so very shortly, um, it, it tends to be uh, a fact that when a, a large settlement is announced, the share price goes up. Um, I think that gives you an answer um, in rather simple terms. Um, I think the other thing I would just say, and it's slowly starting to happen, um, is that I think that the regulators, as enforcers, um, need to be a little smarter. Um, or we could, for example, think about taking away um, licenses or suspending um, banks from doing certain business I'm not suggesting we would necessarily hit the holding company but there are subsidiary companies that could be looked at I rather think we could be a little smarter um, and we're of course seeing this with the senior managers regime but but I think we could start declaring more people unfit and improper um, and etc I think we need to be a little smarter it's not simply a matter of hitting them with the fine and then watching the share price go up
0: thank you uh, Rob Allison. Uh, Jennifer Stephen Jonathan thank you all very much thank you for your questions